welcome to episode four of Creepy History. I'm Jen Coffeen. And I am Fraser Coffeen. Welcome. Welcome. We were working on a new intro. Let us know how you like it. It seemed a little bit you know, more uh, professional. That's what we aim for. A little bit more professional tiny, every time. A tiny bit professional. A wee, a wee dash of yeah. professionalism. Baby steps towards professionalism. That's yeah. us. That's creepy history. That's the, that's the subtitle of episode four. Episode four, colon, baby steps towards professionalism. <laughs> it really sells itself. Yeah. I'm here for that. Nice. Um, but actually, this one kind of does have a subtitle. This is part two yeah. of our two-part uh, Halloween series. That's right. I hope you guys are enjoying your spooky Halloween. Um, yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty Halloween? good. I'm, I'm excited about Halloween stuff. I've been uh, I've been reading scary stuff. I haven't been watching a lot of scary movies, but I've been reading scary things. Oh, yeah? Tell us. I Well, I started... Okay, so because last time... So if you haven't listened to episode three, that was our first... Halloween-themed yeah. one. Jen talked about Lizzie Borden. Sure I talked did. about vampires. And we also, along the way, just mangled the story of Candyman. Yeah. It was a disaster. Weird. We looked it up, obviously, because we like to look things up. Um, that's why we're doing this podcast in the first place. Yeah. And to sort of see. And we were like, we were so off with many of our... And, and I said it... So many things with such authority. That's the thing that's really embarrassing. Confidence. So, yeah. So, so we recorded a, uh, a little mini episode. If you yeah. haven't listened to that, you should go give it a listen because it corrects the Candyman story. Yeah. And um, you owe it to yourself because you, you don't want to quote us. No. In what we said last week. That would be bad. I don't know if we're to the level of being quoted by anyone yet, but True. we don't, I just don't want you to like in passing say like, I heard this because we're rewriting our terrible narrative. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but, but I'm saying that because of our terribleness with that. I've been reading a bunch of Clive Barker. Uh, yes. Very scary stuff. Very good. I've I'm been, next I've been on the enjoying list. It. Yeah, when you're done, I, you're handing over to me. Yeah, I'm super excited. I enjoy reading spooky stuff during Halloween. I, I want to be immersed in the spooky. It's, you know, it's sort of my favorite. Absolutely. Um, but I tend to read like old... I don't know, just like old ghost stories from like my childhood. One of my favorite things every year is Jezebel comes out with this list of like, I think it's like the 10 most terrifying true stories or something. They like ask their readers to send them in. And I love it. I like wait for it every year. And it is, it's just so horrifying. It's really disturbing. Like it bothers me for days. It's like stories from their own personal lives. Yeah. Oh, nice. It's just awful. And some of them are ghost stories and some of them as always are just like people hiding in wall spaces. Like that's a thing mm-hmm. or an addicts. Yep, yep. I mean, it's just really disturbing, scary, scary stuff. I have yeah. never seen this. I got to check it out. Oh, you haven't? Have I, I not know. shown it to you? No, oh, I, every year I wait for it. And then every year I'm like, oh man, I love that I read it and I'm really, now I can't sleep. All right. Yeah. I'll check it. And then obviously there's all the, the horror movies and the Halloween movies. Yeah. Yes. I just haven't, yeah, I feel like I haven't invested the time in the in the horror films enough this year. I got to yeah. watch some more movies. We got some more time. There's you know, time. yeah. But you, I mean, we're, we're horror movie people. Sure. Like we do enjoy them. What is your favorite type of horror film? Like, uh... I'm a sucker. I, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a child of the 80s, so sure. I go with the 80s style horror movies where there's like a little bit of fun to it. Yes. I like a good synthesizer score, <laughs> like like the score for our show is basically what I, I want them all to sound see like. see that you can go wrong with the synthesizer score. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, I, I would say if there was like a specific like genre, um, I am a real sucker for the small group of people 
trapped, you know, like you meet like eight people at the start of the movie and yeah. there's only eight people in the entire movie and like one by one they're going to get picked off. So yeah. like Alien or The Thing sure. or like... Um, zombie films, yeah. Zombie films, yeah, but I like it when they're in like a... Like a well, like Night films. of the Living Dead where yes. they're like all in the When they get house, in the yeah. contained area. Sure. Uh, they made those um, they made those movies in the 80s that were the, uh, was the one submarine one? ones, Leviathan and uh, Deep Star Six. Oh, dang. Do you know those? You know, I... Uh, no. Levi- Le- Leviathan? Leviathan. <laughs> well, they, were, they came out around the same time, some point in the 80s, and they were both like, um, they were both like underwater, like submarine people. Okay, that yeah, that's horrifying. One of them, I, can't, I think it was Leviathan, I'm pretty sure, not Deep Star 6. The, the plot is, see if you can understand the metaphor that they're going for here. I'll give you the really quick rundown of the plot, which is that a group of uh, Americans, good, hard-working American-like under deep sea miners yeah. um, have to go check out a sunken Soviet sub oh, where go. they get, uh, they steal some vodka from the sub. They drink the vodka <laughs> and it turns one of them into a monster. Mm-hmm. And then he slowly turns the other ones into monsters yeah. too. Everyone that he like touches turns into a monster until they get stronger and stronger. And it's down to the lone American to defeat the monster of communism. <laughs> Listen, it's if pretty you subtle. did not have a communist subplot in your 80s film, I don't know what you were doing. Yeah, what's the point? Like, yeah. I mean, that. yeah. That's yeah. what they're there for. That's it's why pretty. they made films in the 80s. It's true. Yeah. Anyway, that's a good one. I'm going to have to watch that again now. That is good stuff. I enjoy it because the sub thing is so horrifying because it's just, it's such a claustrophobic space anyway. And then to have something really terrifying, you cannot get out. You cannot get away. No, that's I mean, the you're, point. You're just in it. We talked about this with the movie Descent. Oh, yeah. Where it's all in the caves. And it's, it, even without sort of the monster element to it, which comes out, it would be a horrifying movie to watch because they're just in these tight little tiny spaces stuck and twisting. And it's really, yeah. And that's what Clyde Barker does well as well. A lot of his, a lot of his uh, stories that I'm reading are like, it's, it's creepy already, yeah. and then some horrifying monster from the deep shows it's up. It's like another and like, oh, layer geez. on top of it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah, nice. So there we go. All right. Creepy movies. I'm excited. I know. We have, we have to figure out what our, our list is going to be, because we don't have, you know, we only have a certain amount of time to watch scary movies. I know. And it's true. Yeah. A small window. We got to get on top of it. All good. right. I've got a cocktail. I'm ready. Do you uh, want yeah, a cocktail? It is, it is. I would enjoy a creepy Halloween. This one looks like Halloween. This so, cocktail. so this one, it's it's pretty kind of pinkish mm-hmm. and orangish, yeah. a little reddish. Uh, pretty exciting. So this is a lot of ingredients went into this one. It did. I saw you mixing over. Significant there. amount of prep work. Um, it some, looks fruity. Some pineapple juice. Uh-huh. Some freshly squeezed orange juice. Some freshly squeezed lime juice. Yeah. Some grenadine. Some white rum. Some dark rum. Oh, a maraschino cherry. You put all that together, and what you've got here is your classic rum punch. Oh. Nothing more. Nothing. Nothing more fancy than a rum punch. Um, I'm up second today. Jen's up first. So uh, I have to wait to find. You have to wait to find is. out why, but my, as a small spoiler, my uh, my story takes us to the land of rum, um, one of the uh, a place where rum is where rum is plentiful. Oh, so we'll, we'll talk about that. Later. I'm excited. Where did was it um, Puerto Rico that we went to the rum place? Yes, right. I thought that there was a rum place, but we didn't go to it. Oh, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> we, like, saw it across the we were, bay. Yes. You could, like, see it over there be like, oh, look, a rum place. Yeah, and then we never made it. But we it. didn't go. Because we were just like, let's just lay here. Yeah. Yeah. And just stare Let's just get the, the rum from the store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Exactly. All right. So there you go. Cheers. Rum punch. You could have made that story more interesting. We totally went. We took a boat to the yeah. rum place. <laughs> we, in the middle of the night, we got a boat. We snuck over there. Man, it was awesome. Oh. All right. Cheers. Cheers. For rum punch.
Oof. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a lot of rum. No, it's fine. It's good. It's very fruity. I like it. It's a lot of fruit. I don't know if I could drink a lot of that, though. I can't do a lot of fruit juice. It feels like it should come in a pineapple. Yes. With like a with like a lot of umbrellas and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a lot it's, of juice. It's very bright. It is. Yeah, this is also a good Halloween drink because it really looks orange. Like you could serve this at a Halloween party, people would be excited. And like you could serve it in a tiny pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> then they would think it was going to taste like pumpkin, though. They would you know? fool them. Well, there you go. That's the trick. That's the trick. Exactly. Hmm. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Okay. I don't know about this one. I yeah. like it, but it's like it's a little too um, it's a little too tart. Yeah, it's very tart. I need it's like really, a tiny bit more. I don't love else. sort of alcohol with sweet. Mm. Although this one's not super sweet, but it's, you know, definitely got that. But I enjoy the color. <laughs> Rum punch. <laughs> Rum punch. Maybe, maybe, maybe not the, the creepy cocktail's finest hour, but that's okay. No, it's all right. Yeah, it was exciting. We okay, do what we can. Okay, gonna, I'll put it in a pumpkin and see if it improves. It. <laughs> see how that see how that helps. Okay, would the, if you put it in a pumpkin, would you give it the little umbrella? <sighs> no, you have to give it like a spider straw or something. What or about like an umbrella? One of those little umbrellas, but it's like made out of like spider webs. Yes. There we go. There you go. That would be those. fun. Yeah. Yeah. The next time, if we ever have a Halloween party again, that's what we're gonna do. Any day. Oh, okay. One more Halloween thing. Okay. What was your best... What do you think is your best Halloween costume that you've ever had? Um, when I was in... Oh, what a college costume this was. When I was in college some year there, uh, I went as Towley from uh, South Park. <laughs> sure. You, a, you and everybody else in college, I bet. No one no? else was Towley. Nobody else was Towley? I got a bathrobe. I mm-hmm. cut it off. I got the, I got the white under for underneath. I painted some bags under my eyes. I looked a lot like Tally. I Do thought you have it was pictures? Good. I've never seen pictures of this. People, we no, didn't, we didn't take pictures yeah, in college. I know. No. We're too busy. There were no pictures. <laughs> what is yours? What is your second best? First best, of course, being Lizzie Borden. Yeah. I have. I guess I probably have like three good ones. <laughs> well, Lizzie Borden for sure. Obviously. Um, the Lizzie Borden costume was originally a Pride and Prejudice and Zombie costume. Remember that? Yes. And that was the dress actually fit for that. It was it is sort of a Regency style dress that I stole from my mother. I don't know why she had it. No, she had it for like school or something, like as a costume. Whatever. Anyway, so. I, yeah, and I had the zombie face. That was great. That was a good one. But then also, remember we went to that party and it was, the theme was, um, like movies and I was Slumber Party Massacre. Oh yeah, that was a good one. That was great. That was a very good one. It was, I got like a really long, like, um, shirt. So it was like one of those like 80s, like shirt nightgowns where it like went to your knees, Mm -hmm. like, you know, that they would like sleep in. And then the socks, the knee socks. That was a really good one. And it was torn and bloody and I had like a blonde wig and a big knife. What yeah. was I at that party? I don't remember what I was. You were, um, oh my gosh, um, the alien. Um, nope, I got nothing. Oh, I forgot. Dang right. it. Okay, it'll, it'll come, come to, to me. It was the crazy alien, something aliens from outer, killer alien. Oh, killer, the killer clowns from outer, clowns space. from outer space. Yes, you were that's killer right. clowns from outer space. That was a good one. That is a weird movie. Super weird. Yeah, that's a good one. That was a good. That was a good combo. That was a. I saw that a long time ago. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That Those, was. That's we a good were, we Those were, were good, good costumes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, Dale was uh from Pussycat Dolls. Right? Josie and the Pussycats. Josie and the Pussycats. Yeah. That's what yeah. it was. Not a good costumes. Not a good costumes. <laughs> that was the best. It was good. All right. Good stuff. All right. What's your What's your Halloween theme story here? <sighs> Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. Okay. 
Jen's been hyping this one up, so I'm excited. I've been hyping it a lot. I'm going to start. All right, here we go. This is, um, I'm just going to start, and then you'll kind of figure out what it is. All right. Okay, are you ready? Super quick, um, I have a couple of um, sources. Washington Post article by Bill Brinkley, Wikipedia, and all that's interesting. So shout out to you guys for helping with this story. Okay, are you ready? I am ready. We'll see if you can figure it out by this paragraph. Okay, okay, okay. August 20th, 1949, the front page headline of the Washington Post is Priest Frees Mount Rainier Boy Reported Held in Devil's Grip. Am I saying Rainier right? Rainier? Rainier? I don't know. Whatever, we're going for it. A quote from this article from 1949. In what is perhaps one of the most remarkable experiences of its kind in recent religious history, a 14-year-old boy has been freed by a Catholic priest of possession by the devil, Catholic sources reported yesterday. Only after 20 to 30 performances of the ancient ritual of exorcism here and in St. Louis was the devil finally cast out of the boy. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the true story of the exorcist. What? Oh, I awesome. Have some music here. Do you know the story? No, I have I mean, I know the exorcist very well. Yeah. I did not know that there was you know any what it basis was of truth. based on? Nothing. Okay, so I knew Just this. something made up in Blatty's head was really? all I thought. Really? Yeah, I know. Okay, idea. I knew that it was based. I thought it was kind of pieced together, once again, incorrect. I knew that there were stories that it was based on, or like they had been pieced together by certain things, or he was inspired. But it, then I read, you know, I did research, obviously, and it was like, oh no, this is like the straight up inspiration. Wow. Sort of like one big thing, yeah. I'm pumped. Um, All right, here we go. Roland Doe was born in 1935 to German Lutheran parents in Cottage City, Maryland. Um, Their actual name is thought to be Hunklier, um, but this is sort of like not quite known because obviously they're trying to keep anonymity. Um, His father, Roland's father, was purported to be a mechanic, uh, but little is known about the actual family as they have remained anonymous. He was an only child. He spent most of his time with adults, and he was especially close to his Aunt Harriet. Now, Aunt Harriet was what was known as a spiritualist, so she was into the occult, um, which, you know, she sounds kind of cool, I'm not going to lie. I mean, that's, I mean, if you're, if you're going to be the kooky aunt, you got to right. be the kooky spiritualist aunt. I know. Aunt. I'm assuming me, she, wore, she wore flowy stuff sure. and big earrings. And, lots, you of, know. lots of bracelets. Yeah. She was awesome. She had got, like a cigarette hanging out of her mouth, drinking a gin and tonic every day. Got weird, slightly inappropriate gifts for yes. Christmas. Oh, yeah. oh, well, here we go. We're going to talk about this. Mm. She introduces young Roland, so remember, Roland's like a kid, uh, to some of her spiritualism, including teaching him how to use a Ouija board. (laughs) Oh, the Ouija board. Always a danger. It's just never a great idea. (laughs) Did you ever have a Ouija board? I did. I did, too. I never thought that there was much to it. No, I mean, we used it at, like, slumber parties. around. At at the same time, we were doing the um, Bloody Mary in the Mirror, you know, that same night. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, inspired the very true story of Candyman, which is a right. totally true story. We talked, yeah. No. <laughs> it's not. I, I'm going to say it again. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, terrible. It's okay. not a true story. So back to Harriet and Roland and their Ouija board. So they're hanging out. They're using the Ouija board, having a good time, you know, asking, you know, who, who in Roland's class likes Roland. <laughs> As you do. Is Harriet's ex-boyfriend going to call her? You know, that kind of stuff. Um, I don't have an idea of, like, how old Harriet was. But, yeah. Anyway. Okay, so after Harriet's death in early January of 1949, um, so at that time Roland was 14. Okay. The trouble started. 
Dun, dun. Okay. Family of Roland Doe begin to experience uh, strange noises, uh, things like furniture moving on its own, uh, objects flying around, and um, or objects like levitating when Roland was around. So these things only happened when Roland was just like in the room or in the house or whatever. They start to see like strange occurrences. I mean, that's not good. No, it's not great. That's really bad. <laughs> it's not good. It's certainly bad. <laughs> Okay. Um, Roland hears, uh, tells his parents that he hears scratching sounds coming from the floors and the walls of his room, which I got to tell you, that would do me nope, in right there. that's bad. I would just, I don't know if I could take it. Water dripping from the pipes in the walls. Yeesh. And then this is a direct quote. The most troubling thing was that his mattress would suddenly move. Oh, man. <laughs> Can't okay. do shit. That's okay. real troubling. That is troubling. <laughs> I feel like it's all troubling. That would be pretty bad. Okay, so Roland's parents were obviously concerned. No kidding. Um, and they reach out, and they're reaching out to doctors. They're talking to psychiatrists. They're not quite sure what's going on. Uh, I love that you just, like, go to your family doctor, and you're like, hey, um, the, you know, like, the water glass was dripping from the walls, and it was levitating, and then the mattress kind of started moving, and there's, like, a weird scratching. Like, what do you think? Is it a virus? <laughs> do you think when you do that... Do you feel like you go through like the checkup? Like, do they like tap yeah. your knee with the thing, and then at the end the doctor's like, so, "So, what's going on? How's, how's everything been? Anything yeah. new?" You're like, "Well, you know, like, you know, like, the mattress moves at night." <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting. Like, you think it could be pink eye related? <laughs> like, what do you think? I know the doctor's like, oh, "What are you doing? I have nothing for you." No. Oh, it's good stuff. Okay. So after they sort of exhaust this, they uh, end up reaching out to their Lutheran pastor, uh, who is Luther Miles Schultz, uh, for help. So I love that eventually everybody's like, I'm going to church because I don't know what else to do. Um, So there was some thought that perhaps Roland was making the noises and the disturbances himself. Okay. Schultz uh, was very interested in parapsychology, (laughs) as as you are. What What is parapsychology? Um, parapsychology is like psych. Isn't it like psychology of like otherworldly? Okay. Like okay, sure. I could be, like paranormal. Yeah, exactly. Okay, got it. I could okay. be a hundred percent off by this, and I will research it and figure it out. Isn't that what Bill Murray's character was doing in Ghostbusters? He was, that sounds reasonable. He was yes. a psychiatrist or okay, psychologist, okay. right? So he's Bill Murray. This guy. <laughs> okay, I got it. You guys, they go to Bill Murray just for now. Pretend that Schultz is Bill Murray okay, in good. Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters Bill Murray, you know? Yeah, yeah, younger. yeah. Yeah, 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 sure. yeah. Okay. Being a jerk, like flipping those cards over, like buzzing that guy. Zapping that guy. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. so that's what's happening here, you guys. Okay, so Schultz, um, he arranges for Roland to spend the night in his home in order to observe him, which you're like, yeah. no, don't do that. Like, yeah, it was, it was like, you know, the late 40s, I guess. Yep, yep. Okay, so on February 17th, Roland spends the night And before Schultz's own eyes, he sees two manifestations that he felt were beyond explanation. One of these is the boy's palate moves across the floor while his hands were outside the covers. And I was like, is it palate? Is he sleeping on like a wooden board? Like what is happening? I don't know. Anyway. You got to observe science. His bed. Okay, I guess. And his body was rigid. And then the other, um, Roland was sitting in a heavy chair and it tilts and falls over like before, you know, without, with Roland just like sitting there, like not doing anything. So, uh, it was, I like this part. It goes, it was then suggested that the family seek the help of a Catholic priest. (laughs) 
I like that the Lutheran guy is like, listen, uh, this is like, outside the realm of yeah. Lutheranism. We're going, we're going to the big dogs. He's like, you guys, you got to go see a Catholic priest. Like, <laughs> this is not our bag. This is way beyond what I got. He's like, get out, go see a priest. Oh man. Okay. That's amazing. So they take him to see Father Albert Hughes, who's the local Catholic priest, um, who then asks his superior's permission to perform an exorcism. He's like, exorcism all the way. And this is basically like late February, so it's moving quickly. Wow. Okay. However, um, Hughes stops the ritual when, are you ready for this? Ronald Bra- Oh, now it says Ronald. Is it Roland or Ronald? <laughs> Uh-oh. I know. The Doughboy. We're going to go with Roland because okay. it sounds like more Roland. 40. It sounds more 40s. Okay. Roland breaks off a piece of the spring from the mattress he's strapped to, Ooh. yikes, and lashes the priest across the, sol- oh, the shoulders. So I think that <laughs> Father Hughes is like, I'm out. A few days later, uh, red scratches appear on the boy, and one of the scratches forms the word Lewis. And this indicates to Roland's mother that the family needs to go to St. Louis, where they have relatives, in order to save their son. So I guess she feels that it was her son's way of communicating with her to okay. go to St. Louis to get help. Okay. Okay. I mean... <laughs> by, by scratching this across his chest. By scratching it across his chest. Because he's like, if he's being overtaken by the yes. demons... It's like he can't speak sure. or control so himself. So that it. was his way of like saying, you know, Lewis. I mean, it's a it's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> I don't know if I would go there myself. She's like, oh, you know, our uncle's living in St. Louis. Let's do this. So I don't know if she just really, you know, I mean, you have to think about this. Like if this is really happening in front of you and you're seeing this, I mean, you just must be desperate. Yeah, any, any sign. Um, you know, is my child like have like this crazy mental illness, which I'm sure they didn't really know about as much, you know, like, I mean, or is there something really happening to him? I mean, it's just terrifying. So anyway, so Lewis, it is, they pack up their bags. They head to St. Louis. All right. The cousin, a cousin of the family is attending St. Louis university and she puts the family in touch with another Catholic priest, father Walter Holleran and Reverend Bodern. Now these names, I feel like I've heard Holleran, but whatever. Okay. Um, after consulting with the university's president, the two Jesuit, I think they were Jesuit priests, they agreed to perform an exorcist on young Roland with the help of several assistants. So I love that they're like, listen, we got to talk to the university president first. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> got to clear it with the university. And now we're all right. Now we're on it. So the men gather at the residence on Roanoke Drive. And I think this is quite famous, this this house on Roanoke Drive, um, in early March of 1949. The exorcist witness scratching on the boy's body, the mattress moving violently, um, several of the same types of things that they were seeing in Maryland. Um, Along with those happenings, they also report that they notice uh, like a pattern in Roland's behavior. So he's very calm and sort of normal, like, you know, 14-year-old boy during the day, like just kind of going about his day. And then at night, while he's like getting ready for bed, he would start to exhibit this sort of bizarre, out-of-control behavior, screaming, wild outbursts. Um, He would enter a trance-like state and start speaking in like a low, you know, guttural, scary voice. Um... The priests also said that they saw um, flying objects mysteriously, like, going around the room uh, in the boy's presence, and that he would also react extremely violently when he saw sacred um, objects, um, you know, like, holy, you know, the cross, and I don't they're, like, flicking holy water at him or what. Sure. <laughs> the priests, they got priesty stuff on Yeah, for sure. Yeah. He doesn't like it. Uh, okay. 
So at one point, so this goes on for weeks. Weeks? Oh, yes, weeks. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, they're okay. doing this for a long time. At one point during, you know, this whole thing, Bodern, one of the priests, he sees an X appear in scratches on Roland's chest, and he believes this signifies the number 10. People are really, you know, making their own connections here. Yeah, they're doing this. <laughs> X, 10. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, that means the number 10. This one, okay, this is really awful. This is so scary. Uh, They claim that a pitchfork-shaped pattern of red lines moves from the boy's thigh, like underneath the skin, and like snakes downwards towards his ankle. Oh, geez. Like a pitchfork. Wow. You know, yeah. Okay. Like all the way down. Like they see that. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, that's, that's it. Yeah, that's not good. No. Um, So there's, this stuff is happening every night. And it goes on for more than a month. And everybody who, uh, who's witnessing this, so I think the priests are witnessing this. I think they have some assistance. Obviously, the parents. I don't know whose house they're staying in, but that poor person, like that, it's like somebody's cousin. It's like or the uncle, right? The, the, yeah, the I think it's a cousin. Okay. I don't know if it's their house or if they're renting, but they're like, yeah, I didn't sign up for this. Yeah. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> um, so they, they come to the conclusion that Roland was possessed by 10 demons. Is that where the X comes in? I, you know, I X don't know. 10? Okay. I'm assuming. I don't really know. Or maybe the 10 different demons were talking or said their names or something. I mean, it doesn't really say. Like, if you were possessed by 10 demons. That's a if lot. You're, if you're one of 10 demons. Yeah. Why would you write the number 10 as like a, like, are you like, are you like, are you like screwing with the priest? Be like, <laughs> we're going to put a 10 on here. He's never going to figure this out. Yeah. They're just like taunting. That seems weird. Or do you like, are you compelled to do it? Like you must, you have to, you know, it's like you're playing a game. You have to like... <laughs> <laughs> the rules of the game dictate that I tell yeah, you how many. Yeah, you have many. to give that much information. On, on day six, I have to reveal how many demons there are. Uh, who knows? All right. I'm not really sure. Okay. So um, the priests keep going. They're not going to give up. They're, you know, they're going with their exorcism. Um, yeah. And on the evening of March 20th, so, you know, we came, we showed up in like February. Damn. Um, it reaches sort of the uh, a peak, um, like a not great peak. So Roland uh, urinates all over his bed and begins shouting and cursing at the priest. And then it says, I love this, it says, now Roland's parents had had enough. And you're like, that's it, dude? That's it. That's it. We're done. <laughs> They're like, listen, we will deal with X's scratched and the pitchfork thing. But you pee on the bed, you're out. Yeah. Like, we're done now. That's it. Okay. So apparently they got to a point where they're like, we're out. They take him to Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis for more serious treatment. But, I mean, it's they're still doing the exorcism at the hospital. Wow. Like, they're not, like, taking him there just to, like, like you they're know. Not, yeah, the priests are still they in. They just move him into a hospital, I think, for medical care, which I, I believe is part of... Like the rule, the church's rules of doing an exorcism, where it's like because I think back in the day when they would do it, people would die from like lack of food and sleep, and okay. you know they would dehydrate it and things like that. Sure. So it, um, I believe it was like there became sort of this these like guidelines where it's like they have to have medical treatment, there has to be a doctor present, that type of like thing. I don't know when that started. Okay. Correct? Yeah. Again, I'm gonna look that up after I say this. Man. Okay. I, I I've. I, I say things with such, you know, gusto, where you're like, oh, of course that's what it is, but, you know, I'm going to double check. I'm going to double check. It sounds good. I like it. Um, okay. Finally, on April 18th, okay? So, April, like, two months we've been doing this. Yeah. April 18th. Um, a mir- a quote-unquote miracle occurs in Roland's room at Alexian Brother, Brothers. It's the Monday after Easter. Roland awakes with seizures. He is, like, screaming at the priest. He says, like, Satan will always be with me, that kind of thing. So, you know, <laughs> just another day. 
And the priests, they, they lay, like, all these holy relics, crucif- crucifixes, all kinds of things on the boy. And then uh, at 1045 that evening, um, they call on St. Michael to expel Satan from Roland's body. They shout at Satan, um, they t- and then they tell him that St. Michael is going to battle him for Roland's soul. I don't really know how they know this, but, the, you know, that's what they're saying. And then a few minutes later, uh, Roland does come out of his trance, and he says he's gone. Whoa. And, like, speaks in his own voice, and he's like, he's gone. And then Roland tells him how he has this vision that St. Michael, um, like, fought Satan on a great battlefield and won. Wow. So it was like a fight for his soul. And he, like, and and he, like, he saw it. Saw it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So there you go. St. Michael, I can only think of that movie, Michael, with John Travolta. Oh, and I yeah. hope that in that this... it was not John Travolta. Yeah, I don't think in Roland's vision that it was John Travolta. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> Hopefully not. I don't think. It was too early to be John Travolta, but it would Good be point. funny if it was John Travolta. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So later that same year, the Washington Post publishes the front page story, which I read the beginning of you, to you, about this exorcism. It was read by Georgetown University student William Peter Blatty. Ah, there we go. Okay. This story was later used in Blatty's 1971 novel, The Exorcist. Um, Some things are changed, but also very similar. It is a Mm 12-year-old girl named Reagan who is possessed by the devil, and her um, sort of, she's like a single, desperate mom, remember her mom's an actress, Yep, yep. um, seeks out the help of Catholic priests to perform an exorcism. The movie is a huge success. It becomes a film in 1973. The film uh, is directed by William Friedkin. Friedkin, yeah. Yeah, there we go. And it stars Ellen Burstyn, Max von Max von Sido. Max von Sido. Sido, there you go. Jason Miller and Linda Blair. Linda Blair plays Reagan, yep. the girl. This film, uh, it, it just causes all kinds of outrage, right? Like, there's people supposedly vomiting in the aisles. They put ambulances outside of the theater. Like, you know, it's re- it's very hyped up. It has an, a crazy reputation as soon as it opens. And it's said to be one of the most cursed films of all time. So now we're going to we're gonna pivot a little bit here, and we're going to talk about the curse of The Exorcist. Oh, all right. Because it's Halloween. Yeah. You know? I like this. I want this. spooky stories, and I want curses. This is like, it's like yes and. That's yes, exa- story, exactly. And here's and we're going to take it up to the next notch. Okay. Nice. So on the set of The Exorcist, there are several injuries. Um, there are long-term back injuries for both Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn, who plays the mother. Um, there's a fire that burns down most of the set uh, during filming, except for Reagan's bedroom, which is completely untouched. Wow. Even though, like, everything else around it completely burned. Okay. Um, the fire was reportedly started when a bird flew into a circuit box. And you know that birds, you know. Birds you are possessed. Know. Yeah. Obviously. You know. Everybody knows that. We all know about birds. Okay. Um, actor Jack McGrowan, who plays Burke. Remember Burke? And um, Veliski Malarios. I'm sorry. I totally butchered that. Who's Damien's mother. Remember the priest yeah, Damien's yeah. mother? Okay. Both of those characters die in the film, right? Burke is the guy. He's like the uh, he's the director of the film. Yes, the film right. in the film, right? Yes. Uh, Ellen Burstyn's um, the film that she's in. And he like... Is like he's like thrown out the window. Yes. He's supposed to be watching Reagan while the mom's out, and then she comes back, and he's like, you know, he looks like he's jumped or fell, but he was basically like thrown out the window. Yeah. Uh, and then Damien's mother is like the the older woman who like passed away. So they die in the film as characters, but they also they both pass away very shortly after shooting. Oh, raps. Yeah. 
Um, Linda Blair and Max von Sido. Max von Sido. Sido. I'm just going to keep doing it. <laughs> We're going to do it every time. Yeah, every time. They, they lost members of their family during the shoot. And then the son of Jason Miller, who plays Father Damien, uh, was nearly killed in a motorcycle accident during shooting. Wow. Uh, yeah, so there's just a lot of, like... You know, accidents, sort of personal traumas, you know, death, that type of thing sure. surrounding it. All right, you ready for this one? Yeah, this is this is the gold. On top of that, Paul Bateson, who plays a nurse in the film. So do you remember when Reagan, she goes in for like all this testing at the beginning, right? Yeah, like, like an EKG or something like correct. that. Correct. Yes. So it's that one and she's doing the EKG and there's a doctor who's in there with her. And it's the one where like he puts the needle in her and it spurts blood. Oh, yes, yes, and it's yes. it's horrifying. Like yeah. it's a really upsetting image, even though it's just like, you know, like a medical procedure. So the doctor who's doing that, performing that, that's this guy. Okay. Paul Bateson, right? Okay. Um, so he, um, before Exorcist is released, like after shooting before it's released, he murders a reporter. What? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And like, and confesses to it like very quickly. It's actually a really fascinating story. I know. I should maybe even just do it as a story into itself. Yeah. Wow. That's something else that happened. Okay. Right after the, you know, it was like after the film wrapped before it was released. Jeez. All right, so The Exorcist is released in 1973, and it is the highest-grossing film of the time. Audiences report having all these physical reactions to it, fainting, vomiting. A a woman blames her miscarriage on the film. Um, People are saying that you can be possessed um, by the film if you're watching it. Uh, It gives, like, an evil—it gives evil, like, you know, a way into your—you know, to corrupt your soul— there's protests. It's protested in cities. It's banned in parts of the UK. Um, so people are waiting in line um, outside the theater. As they say, or like they break into violence suddenly. Like all the people like waiting outside. It probably has nothing to do with drinking. No, and no. Just, you know, in Rome, uh, fans are forced to travel to the movie in a in a like a huge rainstorm downpour. And as the film began, lightning reportedly struck the church opposite the cinema. Yikes. So, you know, and you're in Rome, too. Yeah, right? Rome. I mean, you, you take stuff seriously when it happens like that in Rome. So, sure. obviously, the the exorcist, you know, producers, market, whatever, they're loving Yeah, this, this. is great. They're this play, is gold. Yeah, they're playing it all up, right? Yeah, so tap into your inner Hitchcock and just yeah, go Yeah, absolutely. With it. There's like yeah. a, yeah, it's very, um, you know, Barnum and Bailey kind yeah. of thing. So, you just like, you know, creating that hysteria marketing. Um, so it just keeps, you know, it just makes the film even more successful. It's kind of um, known as, like, shock cinema. Uh, I love this quote. It says, this is by a guy named Crowther. Um, One woman passed out and broke her jaw, for which she sued the studio. In the U.K., St. John's ambulance staff attended screenings. Oh. So they're just, like, sending, you yeah. know, nurses and stuff to the screenings just in case. This is, like, full-on William Castle action um, here. This is amazing. Billy Graham says that the celluloid of the film itself was cursed. Wow. That's my favorite. I love okay. it. And that it contains subliminal messages. So, like, the celluloid of the film. Wow. You touch it, and it's, like, it's on you. Okay. All right, following, we're going back to Roland now. Following the ex, the exorcism of, of our good friend Roland Doe, now it's Roland again. <laughs> I think it was just me, Ronald Roland. His family does move this back. This is not his real name, right? This is like a Jane Doe, John Doe kind yes, of thing. Yes, I believe right? That's so. the whole point? Okay. I, I don't think yeah. it's a, I don't know if it's they are using his real first name Got or it. if it, the both of them are not. Okay. You would think that they would not use his real first name, but I don't know. Whatever. Maybe Roland was very popular back then. It was the Jennifer of the time. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody had it, so they're like, it's fine. Just use it. 
So his family moves back to the East Coast. Um, the, it is said that Roland has found a wife and started a family. He names his first son Michael after the saint that saved his soul, which, I mean, you better. After Travolta? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, if he was still alive today, he'd be in his early 80s. Um, some people said that he had, like, a military career. There's sort of, like, you know, I, I guess some people, have like, uncovered who the family actually is and, like, sort of followed his life. But, again, there's, you know, not 100% sure. You say if he's alive because we don't know if he's alive because he's, we don't know his true identity. Correct. So he could be alive today. Correct. Okay, got it. Yeah. Uh, Bodern, one of the priests, on the other hand, he dies in 1983 after serving the Catholic Church for decades. Halloran, the other priest, lived until 2005, where he dies of cancer. He was the last surviving uh, team of, like, of the group who performed these exorcisms. The room in Alexian Brothers Hospital that Roland stayed in while they were doing this, it was boarded up and sealed following the exorcism. Mm, sure. I mean, you know, yeah, you don't want to, that room yeah, in the no. hospital. Uh, the entire facility was torn down in 1978. The house where the family lived in in Maryland is now an empty lot after it was abandoned in the 1960s. Also wise. Yeah. Choice. Who yeah. wants to stay in that? Yep. Um, in his 1993 book, uh, Possessed, the True Story of an Exorcism, Exorcism the author Thomas B. Allen offered... Um, the sort of theory that uh, Roland was just a really deeply disturbed boy and there was nothing supernatural about him. It's like, quote from the book. Okay. So this, I think he was sort of, you know, this is in 1983, kind of like broaches, you know, the theory of like, you know, there really was an exorcism. It was probably some sort of mental illness or like he was sort of doing it himself. Um, there was a lot of people who sort of questioned the supernatural claims. Uh, it was said that possibly Roland was just like a, a spoiled, disturbed uh, bully who threw tantrums to get at, an attention out of school. Although, I mean, you know, you're in it to win it. It was, I mean, that was intense. Um, it's uh, reported from those who were at the exorcism that they never heard the boy's voice changed. Um, he was just merely mimicking Latin words that he heard the clergyman say. Uh, as, as opposed to, like, he was just suddenly speaking Latin, uh-huh. um, you know, because he was being possessed. Um, the, and then when marks were found on his body, they Halloran failed to check the boy's fingernails to see if he made the marks himself. And, um, yeah, there was just sort of no so they, real they, they begin evidence. to doubt it. They begin to doubt it, yeah. Which so makes was, sense, you know, yeah. you would, yes. Um, during the investigation, it was discovered that the exorcism did not take place at 3210 Bunker Hill Road in Mount Rainier, Maryland. Uh, the boy never lived there. His home was in Cottage City, Maryland. Uh, much of the accepted information is based on hearsay, and it was never actually fact-checked. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's no evidence that um, Father Hughes ever visited his home or had him admitted to the hospital. Um and there's, uh, but there is evidence that Father Hughes, oh, like there's evidence refuting the claims that Father Hughes suffered an emotional breakdown and disappeared after this incident. So remember, that was the first Yes, priest. right. Okay. Yes. Apparently, he had suffered a mental breakdown after dealing with this boy and then, like, was removed. But now there's, now there's sort of like, there's true. no actual, okay. there's just no proof of these so things. So basically, everything is kind of uncertain and untrue. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they know that this boy, you know, was like, there's a story written about this boy, and there was like, you know, he had been seeing all these people, and it was like this incident was set. I mean, they did perform some type of exorcism on him. I do know sure. that. Yes. But they were sort of, you know, a lot of the earlier stuff they can't really. You know, that they're claiming, like, you know, before they went to St. Louis, they're like, there's actually no record of this. We can't prove it. Right. That it happened. Right. And I would imagine that a skeptic in this would say that the exorcism 
works in quotes because if he's a if he's a disturbed kid, yeah, then the I if you convince him that you've done an exorcism, then you kind of you're getting the like delusion out of his body, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and then so he does. You know, they do some research and to, like talking to the neighbors and stuff, and it was like. Quote, the boy had been a very clever trickster who pulled pranks to frighten his mother and fool of children in the neighborhood. Um, you know, he was, you know, had been known to scratch the words Helen Christ on his chest using his own fingernails. Um, you know, mm. I, I don't know. But it's, again, there's no proof of that either. It's um, it's very hard to know. But again, it's sort of like, so in the 90s, there came out some articles and books and things like that sort of really refuting this entire story. But... Something happened. Sure, sure. <laughs> An exorcism was certainly performed, and it did um, inspire William Peter Blatty to write The Exorcist in 1971. That's amazing. So that is the true story of The Exorcist. That's good stuff. I had, yeah. I had no idea. I did good, not know right? anything. Yeah. That's really interesting. I knew that it has something about a 12-year-old boy, like a story, and then there was there's another kind of famous exorcism. Um, I think, but that one, I think, remember that movie Emily Rose? Yeah. That yeah. was sort of based off of that one. It's like a girl, I think in, in Germany or something. Okay. Um, so I thought that the exorcist had to do, but yeah, this, I didn't realize how in-depth this was and also how how much he took from this story. Yeah, there's a lot, Laddie, a lot of yeah, details. Absolutely. Really interesting. The location and like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers to The Exorcist, which I feel like we need to watch again. Have you totally. seen The Exorcist on the big screen? Yes, I have. Yeah, I did when too. When they re-released it some like a long time ago. So it was yeah. at, it wasn't the music box. It was, what was that huge theater? Um... Down, it was like downtown Chicago. Was it the one on Ohio or something? Like nine hundred North or yeah. one of those or eight hundred. There was another one too, something like that. I don't even yes. know if it's there anymore. But it had a huge, it had a, yeah. a really big screen, and they re-released it there, and uh, that's where I saw okay. it. Uh, it was, I think it was around college time. I think I did. It was a just enormous crowd. That's cool. That's yeah. really neat. It was really great. I think that's the only time I've seen it on a big screen. I did see when I was in DC once, I saw the actual stairs that they film, the, <gasps> that they film being thrown down. They're, they're on, on the Georgetown campus, and we were taking a tour of Georgetown. They're like, these are the stairs for the exorcist. Oh, yeah. They're freaky. Oh, yeah. They are tall and narrow and steep, yeah, and like, they look like you're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a, it's such a good movie. It's a great movie. And see, that's my kind of favorite film. It's just like, it's that suspense. It's yeah. like the ghosty stuff. You know what I mean? I love, I love it. Yeah. Um, great film. It's a great film. Good stuff. Thank Thanks. you. I didn't know any of that. Yeah. Excellent. I enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Story number two today. I'm ready. Can you top that? I, in my, I don't know if I've upset you or like ruined no your night. I'm good and you know it's interesting <laughs> no my night is not ruined it's true uh, it's interesting there's actually some I'm, I'm excited because there's some there's some fascinating kind of parallels um, mm-hmm. between the between our two. Oh, nice some, that some similarities I know it's right. true and I also want to hear your hear your drink connection well I, I will say our story uh, today I am gonna tell you the tale of a man by the name of Clervius Narcisse. Ooh. Clervius Narcisse. I don't know this, this is, at all. This is this man's tale. And uh, I'll tie it into the cocktail. Clervius Narcisse was born in 1922 in the town of Lester in Haiti. So the story takes place in Haiti, mm-hmm. hence the rum. Oh. 
Oh, nice. A lot of, a lot of rum consumed in Haiti. I, yeah. looked, I looked up what are Haitian drinks and mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of rum consumed there. There's apparently some kind of very particular Haitian rum, but I couldn't find it around here. So we just have Like rum. it's so special just, to that. Like, yeah, it's like a specific kind. Of, it's like, and it's spelled with an H, R-H-U-M. Rum. Oh. Um, it's like a special Haiti kind of rum that I really wanted to try to find, but I could not track it down. Do you know what's different about it? Like what? I don't know much no, about it. I don't know enough know. about it. I know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Something about like the sugar cane that's used. It's okay. kind of like a way of dealing with the sugar cane. Yeah. That's awesome. But, we'll but see if we, we can we just track have, it down. We just have Bacardi here. Yeah. Straight, straightforward <laughs> rum, rum, Which rum. is obviously like the next in line. Yeah. Right mm-hmm. below that is Bacardi. But yes, that's why we went with the rum punch. To All celebrate, right. To celebrate Haiti. Fantastic. Do so, they drink rum punch there? They drink this thing called tea punch, uh-huh. which is this rum, which is what I was trying to make, which is this rum, H-R-H-U-M, uh-huh. Haitian rum drink. Okay. Yeah. So it's so similar to punch. this, but with like their, a different type of rum. It's like their rum and like then like simple syrup. Okay. So it's like a, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty low key. Like it doesn't have all the stuff in it that this one does. Well, you know I would it, imagine that probably uh, yeah, somebody I, from Haiti, if we were like, here's your rum punch, know, they would be just, like, get out of here. They'd just like slap you. And think, fair, fair. Are y'all like, I'm just going to hit myself. I'm think, really sorry that I gave that to you. I don't think they would appreciate this one bit. <laughs> I bet their drink is fantastic. It's, I've made you an authentic Haitian I rum know, punch here. America. Enjoy. That's exactly, I know. It's got a maraschino cherry in it. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie though. I'm really, I'm really excited about the maraschino cherries. Well, you could have it at the end when you get to the bottle. You have to drink the whole I thing. Know, to get I don't to know the if I can make cherry. it. I don't know if I can make it. Okay. Then you have to decide at what point do you stick your fingers in there and yank it out. Oh, sooner than you think. Go for it. All right, anytime. There, there will be no judgment. All right, so. Clairvius Narcisse, a gentleman from Haiti born in 1922 in the town of Lestere. Um, and uh, our story takes place, starts to take place when he is 40 years old. So flash, flash forward here. Fast forward to uh, April 30th, 1962. 40-year-old uh, Clairvius uh, admits himself to a hospital in Haiti, Schweitzer Hospital in Des Chapels, Haiti. Comes in, he is complaining of fever, mm-hmm. fatigue, and spitting up blood. Oh, I was about to ask if he was getting tested for COVID and then the spitting up blood. <laughs> yeah, that, it changes You're things. like, it's not on the list, you guys. <laughs> Wouldn't it be amazing if I had found, like, you know, the story of, like, the first COVID case, but no. In the 60s. <laughs> In the 60s, no. <laughs> he's got fever, he's got fatigue, he's okay. spitting up blood. April 30th, 1962. Checks himself in. Um, and uh, the doctors check him out, and they can find uh, no cause for this. And uh, it, it's a little noteworthy here. Schweitzer Hospital is actually run by an American medical staff. It's an okay. American hospital down in Haiti. Um so there's a little bit of more documentation about his case. Um, but uh, no, no, they can't figure out what's going on with him. Uh, his symptoms just worsen. And after three days of, of being there and his symptoms worsening, he dies. Uh, oh, no. Yep, yep. He, he dies. He is held in cold storage there at the hospital morgue for a day. And he is buried. Bummer. Poor Clarius. Poor Clarvius. And yeah. that's the end of my story. Thanks. You're like, get him out. Enjoy your rum Creepy, punch, eh? everybody. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it's a story. <laughs> that's it. It uh, is kind of scary. You're like, you go to the hospital <laughs> and you don't come back. I may have phoned it in this week. No, no, there's more. There's more. So. I mean, these days that story is really upsetting. It is. So, 18 years later, the year is 1980. Um, uh, Clairvius has a sister. Her name is Angelina Narcisse. She is Wait, in Lestere. I, oh my God, I know this story. All right, all right, we'll see. She is living in Lestere. Uh-huh. And a man comes up to her and tells her that, yes, he is indeed her brother, uh-huh. Clairvius. 
She's a little skeptical, as you would be. It's been 18 years later, it's been 18 too. years later, and, yeah. he's, and he's dead. Right. It's been 18 years, and yeah. he's dead. And if you look, it looks different. Sure, and, sure. Yeah. Um, but he shares some private info from when they were kids and reveals that, yeah, no, in fact, it is indeed him. What do you think that private info is? I think it said, I, I read different kinds of things, but I think yeah. it was stuff like 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 childhood nickname that like they knew, oh, okay. like some stuff like that. Yeah. Um, like like intimate like detail like family detail kind of stuff you know for mine I'd be like remember where mom hid the M and M yeah see stuff like that <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> that's your detail something something like that so he tells us so she says okay so so this is him this is Clavius mm-hmm. here is the story that he tells he tells her that back in uh, 1962 uh, he was. Uh, obviously, he was not dead. He was alive, and he was alive all during the time that he was in the hospital during his, you know, quote unquote, death. Uh-huh. Not only was he alive, but he was fully conscious. <gasps> but he could not. Uh, he could not speak. He could not move. He could not control anything in his body. But he tells her he was conscious the entire time and knew everything that was going on. He tells her he remembers her sitting by his bed and weeping as the doctors pronounced him dead. Oh, my God. He has, he has, he has memories of this. That he is the was most there for it. nightmarish thing. Yeah. He rem- oh, oh, it gets worse. He remembers all of this. He remembers being put in the coffin. He remembers oh, being buried. No! He shows her on his cheek a scar and tells her that he got the scar from a nail that was driven into the the top of the coffin, went into his cheek. No. And that's what that's from. And again, he couldn't move. So he's just lying there doing that. So he's buried. Yeah, buried alive. Buried alive. Again, this is this is all clear of his story. This is what he tells her, and uh, he's he's underground for some not a hundred percent clear amount of time, a couple of day, something like that. Um, at that which point he is dug up. Oh God! And when he is dug up, he comes face to face with a man, a bokor, which is the voodoo word for pre for for a priest, like a like okay. a like a witch, yeah. you know, warlock, whatever you want to whatever you want to. The voodoo word for it is bokor. Okay. Um, so he, so there's a there's a bokor there who has dug him up, and that bokor gives him some sort of paste, some sort of thing that uh-huh. he eats. Um, the 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 thought is that he has given him paste of this thing called a datura plant, uh-huh. um, which is a poisonous flower. Um, it's in the same family as some of the things around here, around in, in the United States, like jimson weed and nightshade. Like mm-hmm. You've heard, maybe heard oh, of these sure. things. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. You, um, know, you know I like to Google poisons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, here's a little quote about datura. Oh, I should have said, I forgot to give my sources. I apologize. This all comes from Wikipedia, an article called The Secrets of Hades Living Dead by Gino Del Guerico in Harvard Magazine, and a great site called Anomalies. Ooh, so, Anomalies. Here, what is that? It's good stuff. So here, so here's a, a quote about Datura. It says, All species of Datura are poisonous and potentially psychoactive, especially their seeds and flowers, which can cause respiratory depression, arrhythmias, fever, delirium, hallucinations, psychosis, and even death if taken internally. Due to its effects, due to its effects and symptoms, it has occasionally been used not only as a poison but also as a hallucinogen by various groups and cultures throughout history. Traditionally, psychoactive administration of detours has been most often associated with witchcraft and sorcery or similar practices in many cultures. Whoa. So the thought is that he is given this detour yeah. paste. Um, uh, at that point, he is 
made to walk uh, many, many miles, walk a very, very long distance. So at this point, he can kind of move. He can move. He can move. But he is not. Yeah, he's walking on his own. Okay. Um, I'll come back to that in a moment. So he's, yeah, he's walked over to this sugarcane plantation. Okay. Hence the rum. Yeah. Um, he's walked to the sugarcane plantation owned by another Bocord by the name of Joseph John. Joseph John. Okay. Um, where he meets 150 others, 151 to be precise, all in this same position as him. There's 151. Like the same kind of state? Like yeah. Sort of. Where yeah. basically he, you know, he can he can move, he can function, but he says it's all like sort of being trapped in a dream. He can't really control what he's doing. He just sort of, he just sort of does what he's told to do and he can't kind of resist it or fight it or anything mm-hmm. like that. He just kind of goes along and does whatever he's told and he can't kind of stop it. But he's aware of what's going on. Wow. Oh my gosh. A dreamlike state, he yeah. says. 151 others. So he works on this sugar plantation with all of these people in this dreamlike state getting fed this paste for two years. Wow. Yeah, two years. And then at, after two years... This the master of this plantation, Joseph John, dies, and I read a couple different reports. There's there, things get a little spotty in the reports I read here. Um, a lot of them just kind of said he died, um, and the and the the people left. Um, here's my favorite one that I read. I don't know. Again, I've read conflicting reports because if there's nobody feeding it to them anymore, right? Exactly. Then it exactly. would wear off, right? Right. Yeah. So the story that one of them said, and I'll share it because it's the best one. Um, it says in 1964, one of the men. Uh, started to resist eating the datura, eating, mm-hmm. eating the paste. Uh, he and then at some point he flat out refused to eat it. Just stopped yeah. eating it. So Jean beats him. Um, like as they're working the fields, he, he says, "I'm not going to eat that." Jean beats him. The guy who's resisting it picks up a hoe and kills Joseph John right there. Whoa. Um, maybe then. Then there's another sort of. So, so maybe that ha- so maybe that happened maybe not. Then there's a little again a little bit of confusion there. Maybe everybody just kind of leaves at that point. But there's also a couple different reports. This is really interesting that say that um, Jean's widow uh, then takes the men in and feeds them salt in order to break the trance. The idea being that salt, they've been having a no-salt diet um, because the salt somehow interacts with this Datura stuff. So she Mm -hmm. gives them salt, and it kind of snaps them out of it. Wow. Anyway. Because you have to think there are other people there working with, you know, the main guy. Yes, yes, yeah. But they obviously, yeah, just let them go. Yeah, yeah. You know, they didn't, like, somebody else didn't step in and take over. Correct, correct. How horrible. Yep. They leave. It takes him a little while, but he does, uh, you know, he, he does, you know, regain his sanity, regain himself, okay. and, and understand who he is. Um, but again, that is 1964. He doesn't yeah. come back to yeah, find his sister. Yeah, for 16 more years. For 16 more years, right, 1980. Um, during the rest of that time, he's just sort of living, kind of living his life in Haiti. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, obvious question, why... Why? Why did he wait that long to come back? Well, he tells her that he waited that long because he was afraid to come back any earlier because uh, his brother was still alive. Uh, His brother brother dies shortly before 
1980, uh, okay. shortly before he, he goes reappears. back to the sister. Okay. Yeah. And so he says, you know, he says, I'm the reason I've come back now is because now that my brother is dead, I feel safe. Why? Because says Clarivius, it was my brother <gasps> who, who fed me the paste and who turned me into, uh, we'll use the Z word, who turned me into a zombie. What? It was his own brother? Clairvius accuses his brother, who is now dead, has just recently died. Clairvius accuses his brother and says it was it was him. Yeah. He's the he's the person who did this to me. So just like sell him for money? So why? Why does Clairvius think it was him? Because they were involved in a land feud over their father's oh, land. there we go. And, uh, and Clairvius feels that the brother, Clairvius says that the brother did this so that he could have father's land wow. and that he could ship me off. So, oh, yes. my god! And now that the brother is dead, I can come yeah, back. Yeah, you can come and, back and safely. Say, be safe and, uh, you know, reveal myself. Wow. So, anyway... Interesting, eh, right? Imagine so, that story showing up on your front porch. I know, I know. So fascinating. So he is, so he, so he's back, and uh, you know, gets uh, he he gets introduced to a Haitian psychiatrist who lives there by the name of Lamarck Doyon. I mean, I feel like you need to go see. You need to see. Some you got to talk it out. Yeah, you got to chat. <laughs> you got to talk about this. And and the reason that he meets Doyon in particular is because Doyon is someone who has been studying uh, voodoo and the sort of uh, the idea of zombies in Haiti because there's a long yeah you know there's a lot of stories about zombies right and it's a part of the voodoo voodoo is a big thing down there. But it's interesting because it's zombies that are obviously being created as opposed to like our zombie lore which is like you 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 do literally die and then you come back from the dead. But this is like just making people for whatever reason live in like a zombified state. Okay, so that's Doyon. So exactly. So that's what Doyon's that's what Doyon believes. He's been studying this stuff, and his his theory is he dismisses the supernatural. He says there is nothing supernatural right. going on here. What he thinks is that he does believe that there are drugs that create zombies. Right, right. Um, and he believes that to be true. And he says, you know, all of these tales of zombies and voodoo and things like that, these are all, um, you know, th- th- these are true. It's just that the people with, like, like, Narcisse here. They aren't people who are actually dead and brought back to life. He's like, listen, I did all this research, and then I watched Dawn of the Dead, and I, <laughs> I feel like... <laughs> well, and you know, you bring that up, and like, it's worth noting, like, you know, so much of our view on zombies and stuff is influenced by Romero and like everything yeah. that he did in that. But like, this is the is the like traditional voodoo view of zombies that like they weren't oh. like out there to eat your brains; they were out there like doing work. So, sort of before the Romero films really came out, if they, if there were zombie like in you know like zombie films or you know books in the culture or whatever, it was more this type of zombie. They were like working. No, they were dead and brought back, but they were like they were like you they know were brought back. They were, yeah. they were brought back to work. I see. There's a there's a zombie slave kind of parallel that Romero drops, and then because Romero's stuff is so influential, it kind of has been dropped from zombie lore. I see. Oh, interesting. But yes, but okay. yes, but in, in the in the voodoo yeah, yeah, in the yeah. voodoo uh, they're stories, brought back to basically be like the slaves. Like slaves. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. A little uh, yeah, a little uh, Temple of Doom ish. You know. Oh yeah, of course. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Things like that. Because remember the kid, he he is like um, yeah. sort of drugged. The ki- uh, Is the king the boy? Yes. And then he, um, short round, hits him with the fire in the stomach yeah, and like, like wakes him up. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay. 
I'm so, like, now I get it. Now, see, Indiana Jones, we tie it in. <laughs> see some Temple of Doom references. Now, now I'm, I'm good. Fully understanding. So, yeah, so, so Doyon meets with, uh, with Narcisse uh, a number of times. Mm-hmm. And like I said, he's got this theory. And, and part of what is really big and notable about Clairvius Narcisse is that there has always been these like undocumented cases and tales and yeah. lore and like, you like know, all this stuff like and, yeah. rumors and all this stuff like that. He is unique because as I said before, the hospital he went to was run by American doctors. Mm, and so there's a little bit of like document his symptoms. And yes. And there's a little bit of like, obviously there's a little bit of like, you know, cultural imperialism going on here. Right. That like, you know, we're, you know, uh, educated folks are willing to dismiss the you know the local Haitian doctors, right. but they're not willing to dismiss the the testimony of the Americans running the American hospital, yeah, like right? George Clooney from ER. <laughs> yes, yes, you know, it carries a lot of clout. Yes, so they're like they're like, oh, well, this must be true. The Americans say it. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't believe it when the Haitian guy said it, but you know, there's a degree of that. Part of it too, though, might be that there was actually records kept, mm-hmm. like physical records. Um, you know, yeah, it's all which again, I mean, even in the sixties, like, you know, yeah. this was sort of an, especially, you know, in different kinds, like it was newish. So, yeah, you exactly. know, they, and now 20 years later, we can look back and say, look, I have documentation of this. Exactly. Exactly. But were they not, did they, you know, what are they doing to make sure he's dead? Well, I guess it, did his heart stop? Like, how are they saying he's dead? I mean, these doctors checked him and they pronounced him dead. Is it that the Medicaid, like whatever the paste was, they were giving him like, I, I feel like you I know, read somewhere, like slow. Go back to what I said, right? Point. Respiratory depression, yeah. arrhythmia. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think that it, it gave off the appearance of death. Did they hold a mirror to his nose? <laughs> I think they Every, probably did more. Everybody knows that you need to do that. Maybe who knows? Anyway, wow. so Doyon Doyon studies. No, I do know that there are drugs that can make you seem dead. Yes, you're not dead. exactly. And this is this is it. So then that's his theory, right? That these drugs are creating zombies. So he starts contacting a bunch of botanists. To say, oh sure, hey, I want to study this. I want to figure out what's yeah. going on here. So he reaches out to all these people. Um, they, you know, I've got this verified case. We got to study this. Uh, he has a connection at uh, at Harvard, the at the Botanical Museum at Harvard, and uh, that connection hooks him up with a guy, an ethnobotanist, ethnobotanist from Canada, by the name of Wade Davis. So Wade Davis uh, gets a bunch of funding from the Botanical Museum at Harvard. Can I just, or do you think Wade Davis rides a motorcycle? Possibly. <laughs> With like plants in Because he's a, he's a hip, he's a hip he's got ethnobiologist. Like plants in the back. Botanist, ethnobotanist. Yeah, I can see it. <laughs> he's like strapped to like, the back. Like, hey, here I am. <laughs> Wade Davis here. <laughs> Uh, no, he, so okay, so this, so he gets he gets this stuff together. He goes down to meet up with Doyon and Narcisse. Um, he gets funding from the Botanical Museum at Harvard. This I love. I love this little detail. The Botanical Museum at Harvard, Harvard University, mm-hmm. sponsors him, and they sponsor him in what is called the Zombie Project. Wow, real thing. Harvard University invests their money in and their the efforts in the Zombie Project. It's an actual thing that yeah, Harvard actually it was did. The eighties. It's good stuff. They're like, we're doing this. I also discovered in Googling the Zombie Project that it's also the name of a boxcar children book, and I really want to know what the heck goes on in a boxcar children book called the Zombie Project. Really. Sure I read is. a lot of boxcar children. Didn't read the zombie I did not project. Not read the zombie project. Nope. I missed that. We got to get go. our hands on that book. Track that down. Yeah, it's, it's, it's they get chased by zombies. <laughs> I wonder if it's I wonder if it's based on the life of Narcisse. That'd be intense. What if they're all trapped in a boxcar with a zombie? That's pretty good. You know? Yeah. That's intense. Uh, that's like intense. the thing with a zombie. See? Yeah. Oh, that's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I bet uh, Fran and was it uh, Flossie and. <laughs> 
Ned <laughs> I don't have no make idea. It. <laughs> no idea. Their names are so weird. It's like Nan and Fred and Flossie. Nan and Fran and Flossie and Ned or something. I don't know. Something whatever. Like that. Yeah. Anyway, good times. Good Shout times. out to the boxcar children. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so so Wade Davis, the zombie project, he go he goes south. Not with the boxy children the boxcar children in tow. <laughs> he just goes himself. Um, and uh, he he begins looking into this. Amazing stuff happens down there for for Wade. What Davis. an adventure! I some there are times in my life where I feel like I'm living the wrong life. Oh, like you're just they're like, listen, you're gonna work on the zombie project. You're going to Haiti. Pack your plants in a in a backpack and go. Oh, you have no idea. You have no idea what yeah. kind of adventure he went on. He goes to Haiti. He starts to you know look into all this stuff, and he meets. A, he's introduced to a guy named Marcel Pierre. Yes, of course he is. And Marcel Pierre is a bokor. Right? Uh-huh. Voodoo, voodoo priest slash bordello owner. Yeah. <laughs> Bocor slash bordello owner. <laughs> so so Davis goes to Pierre's bordello. Sure. Where they like meet in the back room. And like you can envision this perfectly, Where right? Else you you, you, you see this, right? Yeah. He goes and he meets up with him. And uh, Davis tells the story of meeting up with Pierre and he tells Pierre, you know, what he's, he's here for. He wants he wants the powder. I want the I want the stuff. I want sure. the I want the I want the powder that makes people into zombies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like he's just going to get yeah, it. Yeah, come on. Like he's give just going to give it to him. So Pierre gives him something, and Davis <sighs> knows that it's fake. And, yeah. da- and Davis calls him on it. And he's like, this is this is, this is is crap. This is not the real thing. I know you're holding out on me. I want the real powder. Don't mess with me. Mm-hmm. I'm an ethnobotanist from Canada, like man. I'm from Harvard. I ride a motorcycle. Yeah. I didn't put my motorcycle in storage for nothing. <laughs> yeah, do it. Give it to me. So so Pierre then gives him the real powder. And Davis performs a little a little sleight of hand where he kind of like you know pretends that he uh, that he ingests the powder, but he doesn't ingest the powder. He pretends to ingest the powder. Uh-huh. Uh, at which point Pierre says to him, "You're a dead man." But of course, Davis didn't really ingest the powder, so Davis is like, "Whatever, I'm not." And he lives. Uh-huh. And Pierre's like, "Okay, cool, man. You're cool. I'll teach you how to make the powder." What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why has no one made a film of this exchange? Like <laughs> it's pretty good stuff. That's amazing. So they make the powder. So, so they do, he takes him and shows him how to do it. So Pierre shows him how to make the powder. He's like he's like okay, you're you're in, you're hip, yeah. you're a cool guy. I like your motorcycle. Let's make <laughs> let's make this powder together. And uh, Davis doesn't give he does not give the exact details on exactly how the powder is made, but he lists some of the ingredients, which include include things like toad, sea worm, lizard, tarantula, and ground up human bone, which they Whoa. get by Pierre and um, and Davis going and digging up a say. freshly buried yeah. child no! and, and grinding up his bones. No. Yep. yep. Oh, God. <sighs> so Davis creates this powder. And Davis then reports on all of this, and he says, he says, okay, you know, I've completed my it studies. Out? Uh, How does he know it works? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. I think, I okay. think he, he, you know, he, I mean, he doesn't, like, give it to someone. That would be bad. But I, I think, know, he, you yeah. know, I don't know. Like he's just doing research, I guess? Just doing research, right? So so, uh, so Davis looks into all this, and his, his conclusion that he comes to is that the uh, is that this Bocor did indeed give Narcissa powder, and he finds, Davis finds, that the key ingredient in it, in it is tetrodotoxin. Okay. Which is, um, 
a toxin found in pufferfish, fugu, that Homer sure. Simpson eats and almost dies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's um, a reference. <laughs> yep, yep. And uh, his, his theory, he, he states that this, this bocor cut, uh, made a cut on Narcisse and then put the tetradoxin, the powder that included the tetradoxin on him. Okay. That that had him fall into this death-like coma. Okay. Um, and then then from there he was pronounced dead, and then from there the detour was what kept him in the zombie-like state. That's so, Wade Davis's findings. So putting it in, if he would have eaten it, like ingested that way, it probably would have killed him, but putting it like possibly in the cut... I like think that's it, the idea. Maybe yes. just like just bare. I mean, it's you know, it's, sure it's dicey. Like they yeah. probably made some mistakes. <laughs> yeah, some but, mistakes. But you know, okay. So that's yeah, so that's 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 what Davis's uh, mm-hmm. Davis publishes that. Now, much like yours, ultimately gets discredited in the nineties. Once you know, over time, once the nineties roll around and people are skeptical, uh, listen to everything yeah. they did in the eighties. Yeah, they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Roll it back, roll it back. What were you guys doing? <laughs> All right, hold on, hold up. Hold up. Um, so yes, uh, there be other people start to do more research into this, and though tetrodotoxin is often cited as being involved in zombie cases, uh, the research largely Davis's research largely gets discredited. Uh, nobody's able to like recreate anything like this. They can't like you know. It, it just they can't figure out like it just doesn't seem to be accurate. Davis also eventually that tarantula and child's bones uh, recipe wasn't working. Didn't seem to work <laughs> for anybody else. Davis also falls into a little bit of ill repute because you know he dug up a child, yeah, it's which great. has a whole lot of like you know uh, scientific ethic, oh ethics, yeah, research ethics problems to it, and people start to sort of be like, uh, uh, yeah, no, we don't yeah. like this. No thanks. So it's so it's a little bit unclear, you know. That that's his theory. That's what's published out there. Mm-hmm. Um, he publishes this in a book that he writes titled "The Serpent and the Rainbow," what? which is what Wes Craven based his movie on. Wes Craven's "Serpent and the Rainbow" is this story. Oh, I didn't know that. Bill Pullman is Wade Davis in "Serpent and the Rainbow." Okay, I saw that. I was really young. Probably not the whole thing, but like... I've seen it. I don't remember it very Like well. stupid young. And yeah. that's the thing. I don't remember it. Yeah. So um, I, I think I need to see it again. Mm-hmm. Can I ask a question? Isn't this also sort of the premise for Get Out? Um, no. Okay. No. I thought this was sort of tied into that as well. Not so much. Okay. But I haven't w- seen Get Out. No, I haven't, which is really embarrassing. I can't. I it's it, because if I, I, going, if I answer anymore, I'm going to reveal too many. Spoilers. Okay, don't yeah, don't spoil anything for me because I was actually going to like watch it. I was going to do the story. Oh, good. Well, and then like again. tie it into Get Out, but it's the Serpent in the Rainbow. Serpent in the Rainbow. Oh, so there we go. Okay, there we go. I I need to watch that. And and, the, and that is his. That's Davis's. Again, that's the title of Davis's book about this. Yeah, the Serpent in the Rainbow, which has largely been discredited since, but still makes for a great movie and a great title. I mean, come oh, great on. title. Good for him for coming up with that. Yeah. So in the end, uh, Narcisse ultimately dies in 1994 at age 72. Natural oh, causes. He has a long life. Then. He does. He does. Um, he, did he like get to live a nice life? Like that well, makes me sad. So here's the interesting thing. Okay. So here's the final twist. Yeah. The final twist to this whole story. There's never any 
you know, they investigate this a lot from a, like, what exactly happened uh, from a, like, science and, like, body standpoint, right? Like, what happened? Like, how yeah. was he pronounced dead? Does how nobody did go to this crazy cane, sugar cane farm and is like, what's going Like, right. it's over now. So there's no, I mean, that was, like, 16 years ago at that point. Oh, but, yeah, good point. But, yes, there's not. Everybody left. He, you know, he accuses his brother, mm-hmm. but there's not really significant, like, criminal investigation. Yeah, because, I mean, how do you prove it? And the brother's gone. Yeah. The brother's dead, everything like that. But, but it is a little weird, right? That there isn't this, that there is not this this criminal investigation. So, um, so the question is why? Why why don't they look into this? So remember, I told you that um, that uh, Narciss Clavius blamed his brother because of the land dispute, the sure. father's land, right? Yeah. So, in actuality. And I had to read a lot to find this. I'm putting my fingers into the yeah, I hear the to yeah. retrieve the cherries, by the way. <laughs> you got one cherry out. You get the second one. Go, yeah, go, go. It. I got it. Boom. Success. Yep. Nicely done. Uh, so I, I, t- I had to do a lot of research to find this. This is not this, this, this detail. These details were not published in everything. Okay. But eventually I found that um, his, yes, they were having a dispute over the father's land. But the gist is... While they're having this dispute, the dad, whose land it is, is still alive. Wait, what? And they're fighting over the land and the dad's still alive? Yes. And in Haiti at that time, what would be traditional is that the dad would just give, you know, his land equally to his heirs, right? You know, right. You, get, you get, you know, half what, and, half half and yeah. you get half or whatever it is. And by all accounts, that was indeed what was going to happen. Clairvius is before the dad dies, is really questioning that, Clairvius himself, and is really kind of pushing the dad to, like, you know, be, you know, what are you doing with the land? And, like, yeah. you got to give me the land. And, you know, try, seemingly trying to get a little bit more of the land. Mm. Um, and, again, because the dad is not yet dead, this is considered to be in really bad form. Okay. This is really, this is, this is a real... Yeah. This is a real no-no. It's a faux pas. Super yeah. faux pas. I mean, know? it would be nowadays, too. Yeah, it's not Even good. though everybody still probably does it. But it's not good. Yeah. In addition to that, uh, Clairvius apparently also uh, has a number of children by a number of different women, mm. none of whom he supports in any way. Clairvius. Um, and uh, and he, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, provide money to their families, yeah. doesn't take care of them. And in addition to this... He has a reputation around town for being someone who will, uh, who is very selfish with money, who will ask for favors, who will borrow money, who will do all these kinds of things, but will never pay it back, will never return the favor, will never do anything. He's a, you know, a a miser sort of, you know? So he's not the town favorite. (laughs) No. And in fact, in fact, Uh it turns out that when he, 1980, when he returns to Lestaire, the people of Lestaire are not at all pleased to see him. Uh-huh. They are very displeased that he's back. They do not like him. Oh. And in fact, he spends... Well, and also, I mean, the, he, he's probably he was dead. dead. <laughs> he spends his first night in Lestaire in jail, not because he's done something wrong, but because they have to put him there to protect him. Wow. And the way that he actually comes in contact with Lamarck Doyon, the, the first guy who was looking into him, is because Doyon uh, is like is like his like protector. Wow. So this is the last part that, you know, part of the gist of the whole zombie curse, for lack of a better word, or zombieism or whatever you want to say in voodoo is that 
you know, it is seen amongst uh, the people of Haiti, uh, the people who believe in voodoo, as, you know, they wouldn't use the word karma. That's not the word that they would use. Uh-huh. But it is seen as a sort of a just punishment for someone who is, it's, it's a punishment. It's yeah. A, it's capital punishment. Yeah. And the, the way that he is selfish and doesn't take care of others and disrespects his, his father and doesn't take care of his children, the reason that there's no criminal investigation is because to the people of Lestere, Clairvius deserved to yeah. be turned into a zombie. He got what he got. And to those people, the villain of this story is not Joseph John. The villain of this story is Clairvius Narcisse. Wow. That's a lot to unpack. There you go. You know what I mean? Yeah. Jeez. But at the end of the day, he is it is considered a verified case of of zombieism. Yeah. Wow. There so in my crazy time life Mysteries of the Universe book, this story is in there. Uh-huh. And I've always remembered it. Yeah. There's a picture. Yes. Of him. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's great. So there you go. Good stuff. Good stuff, eh? Yay. There we go. All right. Should we do one more cheers? One more cheers. For I, mean, I, can't, I, I can't really cheer Clarius because I don't really know enough to know if he's. No, if he's bad I mean, or here, not. okay, here's the thing though. It's tough. I mean, you know, yes, he seemed like he he was a jerk, he had some problems. I don't know if zombifying somebody <laughs> for two years, I mean, two years plus, like he could have, it could have gone on for even longer. Like, you know, that seems a lot. It seems intense. And, you know, but I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, but that's, that's the punishment of the, of the, uh, the punishment of the, of the, of the region. Don't yeah. the, the thing that we have sort of come again and again in many of these stories is like, don't mess with the people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the people are going to get together and they're going to take you down. Oh, one hopes. You know? One hopes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, watch out for the people. Cheers. All right, cheers. I think I'm going to just fake drink that one. No, you took a huge drink. I know. Yes. <laughs> I did We're drink. on the radio. You don't have to. You That's don't have to, true. You don't have to say I drank half of it. You it did. wasn't bad. Good. You know? Excellent. It's a little bit sweet. So, all, all right. right. Halloween, uh, anything left for Halloween? No, that's it. That's it. We got, uh, the next time we come back, Halloween will be over. Hopefully we will have watched some scary movies by that point. Yeah. A lot more. At least Halloween. You have you to watch, watch Halloween, Halloween I feel like now I at least need to watch like clips of the Exorcist and the Serpent and of the Rainbow. And Serpent of the Rainbow. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. We'll do it. All right. Good Boom. stuff. Yay. All right. All right. You guys have a great Halloween and we'll see you next week. Farewell. Bye. Hi, this is Fraser with details on next week's Creepy Cocktail. For next week's Creepy Cocktail, we are going to New York City to make a classic Manhattan. So you're going to need two ounces of rye whiskey, one ounce of vermouth, two dashes of bitters. You stir all that into a mixer with ice, strain it into a glass over ice, and top it with two maraschino cherries. Make sure you're splurging to get some good quality cherries there. And as always, please make sure you follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Creepy Hist and Instagram at Creepy Hist Pod. See you next week.